At Freedom HealthWorks, we're focused on putting medical professionals back in control of their practices. Utilizing a structured, tailored approach to business, startup, and operations, it could make sense for you to work with our professional team to avoid expensive pitfalls and, more importantly, expedite your journey to success. As we all know, time is money. If you're involved in the practice of medicine and desire to practice free of headaches and constraints, reach out for a no-obligation consultative conversation. Call us today at 317-804-1203 or visit freedomhealthworks.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Healthcare Americana. I am your host, Christopher Habig, CEO and co-founder of Freedom HealthWorks. Healthcare Americana is a podcast for the 99% of people who get healthcare in America. We're not clinicians or policymakers. We're patients and caregivers, executives, and advocates who are fed up with the status quo and have a desire to change it. This podcast brings listeners backstage at innovative organizations across America that are putting patients first by delivering exceptional care to anyone and everyone. Today on Healthcare Americana, I am joined by Andrew Richburg, the CEO of C3LX, a patient engagement, remote patient monitoring and care management platform. Andrew, thank you for joining us here on Healthcare Americana. Thanks for having me. Now, diving into C3LX, you know, technology is is more or less kind of a buzzword these days. Everybody understands that we need it. What is the best application of it? And how much can we put into our daily lives before it really becomes disruptive? I've known about your company for a while and watch you guys do some great stuff. Give us a quick overview of, of what C3LX is and really how you got entered into really the direct care space and more of the patient engagement and care management space. Yeah, so we're a platform and we see ourselves as enablers of the disruptors. So enablers of the care models like direct primary care who are really trying to disrupt healthcare, uh, deliver care in a different way. Our platform really is about connecting patients and care teams back together in a really meaningful way when a patient's outside of the four walls of a clinic. So you think about whatever you're dealing with in your in your daily life to manage your health and to become healthier, uh, we help support that. So whether you're dealing with a chronic disease or you're just trying to live a healthier life, um, trying to manage uh, you know losing 10 pounds or you need to lose 60 pounds, you need to manage your hypertension. We really help do that in a way that prior to our platform was really difficult to do. So uh, going and seeing your physician, for example, you know once a year, or twice a year or on a sick care visit doesn't give you the opportunity to really manage your health with your care team. And these direct care models are built to be more effective in doing that. And our technology, our platform really enables that to happen in an efficient and effective way. Now, I want to make sure that people out there listening understand exactly what C3LX does. So it's more of an integration, bringing a lot of information together. Dare I use the word, you know, dashboard, kind of one view in there. I don't want to speak on your behalf, but it's an overview of all the different systems and information that, that uh, you know, focus on physicians can pull up and have access to at the blink of an eye. Yeah, I think one view is a great, great way to look at it. So we, we talk about 360. So C3LX is the Roman numerals for 360. So we give the care team a 360 degree view of a patient. So everything from how they're effectively managing or not effectively managing a disease to their level of activity, to their nutrition, to what they're uh, blood pressure levels are, we can give them that full picture. and We bring that into the care team in a way that's very actionable. So it's not just a data dump, a lot of remote patient monitoring devices dump data into a EMR or into a dashboard for a physician. The physician has to then go through and really uh, massage the data, figure out what's going on. We really make it smart, actionable, uh, easy to use, and all in the palm of the hand of the patient. So devices that a patient would typically have, a 
blood pressure monitor, a Bluetooth scale, an activity tracker, even just the, the native uh, functionality of your phone. We bring all that data, remote patient-generated uh, data, into uh, the care team's dashboard or into their EMR, uh, and then that care team can act on it. So it really just is a, a point of being able to see a holistic view or single point of view of everything that's happening in that patient's life, because that's really what health is about. It's not about sick care, which is what it has been in the U.S. for a long time. It's really about how do we understand a patient and engage with them in their daily life to make the changes, small changes that can add up to big things over time and really improve quality of life for that, for that patient. I want to go into that, what you just said there, giving patients really the opportunity to look at what their health is. I mean, all too often, patients walk into a doctor's office, even a dentist's office. They have no idea what notes are being taken about them other than what is communicated uh, back to the patient. But there's a lot of stories we hear of a physician has their name spelled wrong or their weight was entered incorrectly. How important is it for patients to demand the information and have an insight into how those visits are going and what information is being really logged about them? It's very important. And I think patients in general need to be empowered with the tools to more effectively manage their own health. And again, you see the physician more as a guide and someone who can hold you and uh, accountable and help support you on your health journey. But to do that, you've got to be, you need to be empowered in a lot of different ways. So you need to be the one who's working with the physician to set your own health goals. So it doesn't do a lot of good for a physician to tell you to lose weight and you walk out the door and, and go back to your normal life. But if you are really engaged and you've got the right data, then you can say, you know what, I know that I need to lose 25 pounds in the next year. Let's figure out a pathway to do that. It's the same thing with any other, any other data that a patient should have access to. So um, it's not just obviously your biometric data or your labs, all those types of things are really, really important. It's really that sense of ownership, I think, for the patient that they need to know and manage their own health. And not every patient is, is really wired to do that. So you need a platform, a little bit more flexible platform, a supportive platform like ours that really enables a patient to be able to do that regardless of what they're, what we call a psychographic segment, no matter how naturally right now engaged they are in their own health, you need a platform to help support them on that journey because everyone's in a different state. Everyone's on a little bit of a different journey. So, you know, platform is really flexible to be able to do that. And physicians can't do that at scale. They can do it in the small group. So, take a, you know, 150, 200 patients. But if you're going to get to a thousand patient panel, again, you need a platform that really supports that because it's, it's just not a scalable, efficient model for, for clinicians. They're going to drive themselves crazy in the same way that they drove themselves crazy when they're in a fee-for-service model and seeing 20 to 25 patients a day. Mm-hmm. Going, going down the digital health kind of well, rabbit hole, I guess, um, we hear a ton of buzz about digital health, you know, coming out of, hopefully coming out of the pandemic here. Everyone's like, oh, we're going to do vir- digital. It's all virtual. Have you seen any, I don't know, anybody tiring of more app-based health management systems, or are you guys still seeing great user engagement? Yeah, we see good engagement. Um, I think the the question becomes whether or not people are trying to use the technology as a replacement for in-person care or as a supplement to in-person care. And I think we see ours as an enabler to the actual, the existing care models. So trying to make it more efficient and effective for a provider to manage care outside of the four walls of a clinic, but not replacing that. So when a, when a clinician can take in, bring, be able to bring someone in for a well care visit, uh, we still think that's really critical. Telehealth should not replace that, except when it's really the only way a, a patient can see their provider. Obviously, that was part of what happened during the pandemic. Um, rural health is an issue where you need to have much more robust telehealth services. 
um, virtual health services. But again, if it's seen as a supplement and you're supporting what's happening with the care team and that you're really enabling the relationship that already exists, I think that's a, a real value add. Um, but I think when it does become this point of, hey, if you want to see the doctor, you have to go through a, you know, a virtual visit or you have to go through three virtual visit hoops before you get an in-person visit, people are going to tire of that quickly. That's just not uh, the model. And I, and I don't think in the long run, especially if we're trying to transform healthcare, we don't want to supplement uh, or replace the relationship with the provider. We want to supplement. We want to create more of a dynamic relationship that's built on really good data, uh, built on the same same framework of understanding of that data for the patient and the provider. That is language and messaging that I uh, I'm totally on board with. Too often we we hear doctors saying, "I just want to do a virtual clinic," and it's just like, isn't this the point of medical care? You know, the one-on-one yeah. relationship, getting in there, poking, prodding, that type of thing, getting the stethoscope on the chest. I, I just, I don't know if technology yeah. is, is perfect enough to replicate that experience and that level of care. So I love how you, you mentioned that. And that's a theme that we talk about is it's not going to replace it, physical care, but you get right. all the barriers out of the way. And now you're able to supplement it with all these cool products and you'll be able to see these insights that never even imagined before. So very, just to very, add to that real quick, physical care can be just so much better too, if you've got that data. So if you really know what's happening with a patient and you can say, hey, you know what, you're, one of your big issues is, is sleep. So it's going to be really hard to lose weight, get active, eat right. If you don't get your sleep figured out, that's something that a provider doesn't have in their palm of their hand today. Typically, it's something they can ask about and say, you know, hey, how are you doing on sleep? And then it's all dependent on whether that patient has a good understanding of sleep, sleep hygiene, how they're, how they're doing. That data, though, in that, in that physical environment, face-to-face, when you've got it and you can use that as a supplement to what you're finding out with the stethoscope and what you're finding out from poking and prodding, you've got a whole other layer of information that becomes really critical to, again, transforming what happens when they leave the clinic. Because that's, you know, what happens in the clinic is this tiny, tiny fragment of their life. So taking that data, what you know beforehand, transforming that or bringing that data into an effective way into that physical environment, and then taking it back out afterward in a more directive care management approach, say, hey, here are the things we really need to focus on and work on. Let's talk about how we're going to do that. That's the kind of environment that we want that physical care, face-to-face care to be, is really how do you get them engaged, build that relationship, get on the same page with them, send them out with good marching orders, and then a good dynamic way to manage whether or not they're following those marching orders and to, and to stay connected and hold them accountable. Yeah, it's how compliant are they, right? And let's 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 go after that sleep vein real quick, you know, because that's a great example that some people come into a doctor's office, and this happens across the country, and this has happened over the past few decades. Hey, doc, I'm not sleeping very well. Not sure what's going on. What's usually the answer? Well, here, try these sleeping pills. Try these sleeping. Yeah, here's Ambien right? or Lunesta. Yeah, yeah. And then people, you know, on Ambien, get up in the middle of the night and start driving across right. country, and there's all kinds of problems that way. <laughs> Just a few problems. Just a few problems from that standpoint, but it's getting away from just throwing pills at problems. And it's just going to say, why don't you ask the question? Well, why aren't you sleeping? Well, what's going on? Is it a nighttime routine? Is it a stressor on your life? What else is going on? You know, do you have, do you live outside a fire station and they get the 3am call every single night? There's different things that can play into that. And so, you know, using a system like yours, a platform like yours, being able to take really that entire environmental picture and not just throwing pills at something. And sleep is just right. one thing that you know you mentioned there. So decided yeah. to keep pulling on that thread. It just shows again where people's perception of reality might be a little bit different than what is actually going on. And so you you talked about weight loss before and 
how many times have we heard out there that, you know, I just can't, I can't lose weight. I track all my calories. I eat healthy. And then you find out that, you know, they're sneaking half a dozen Oreos every couple of hours and going that route with it. And the doctor has no idea. So the doctor is going to say, well, I think medication is the last resort here, but using a system like C3LX, all that insight is going to add up and make that relationship and make the interaction with your doctor so much more powerful, right? Yeah, absolutely. We know so much about the different areas of how we can impact small changes. You know, sleep hygiene, for example, there's a whole field of study on sleep hygiene. How do you prepare for set bedtime? You know, do this in a consistent way, manage your environment at night, temperature, every, I mean, you, you name it, everything. We know a ton about it, but how many people actually know and are utilizing that? You need systems built to help support them. Food, you know, you nailed it. You're, they record what they're eating. You know, that ham and cheese sandwich and a, you know, small bag of Lay's wavy chips, but they also had a, you know, 64 ounce big gulp of Pepsi or Coke or whatever. I mean, there's, and they're, they're not recording that. So you, that's the kind of, you, you really encourage people like on a platform like ours. No, no, let's track everything. There's no judgment. Let's just figure out what's going on. Why don't you know how you, you know, why don't you understand, give us a feedback on how you feel about what you ate and whether or not you think it's healthy. But that really does start to drive a different kind of a conversation. And then you're talking change talk. Then it, then a physician becomes more of a guide and a coach as well as a clinical expert. Or in the best best models, the models we're seeing today, you've got a more dynamic care team. So you've got someone who's a, a health coach and a dietitian, and you've got a social worker. You know, talking about social determinants of health is a is a really critical factor today, and really understanding what's happening with individuals. You know, if you live next to a fire station or you don't have access to a safe place to exercise or you've got food insecurities, those types of things, you've got to address those underlying issues. And if you don't have the right kinds of conversations, you know what's happening, you're not seeing the data coming through and from the patient, you may not ever have that conversation. So you really ha- we really have to think about more broadly how we bring that data in, but then you can use that data really effectively, again, in that in-person setting or in that, you know, for us, it's we've got... You know, the asynchronous chat, the ability to engage the physician or the care team over time, you've got that data to really help support that. And I always like to, to kind of peek under the hood here and, and see what people such as yourself who are doing incredible things with incredible technology or building out the companies, what was your motivation for getting into this? Well, it's a, so I was a healthcare executive. So I was a chief marketing, chief strategy officer for a large integrated health system. And my job was really, even though we were a not-for-profit, you know, in title, our job was, my job was to, to grow, fill beds, uh, stop leakage, uh, make sure our surgery suites were, were flying, the physicians were happy. Um, it's that really, at the time when I was doing that, we were really starting to have national conversations about where healthcare is going is, it's untenable as a, as a country. And uh, here I'm working exactly against those conversations. And I, and I think we got some things really wrong early stages with how we think about healthcare reform, but I know the conversation was right. We have to figure out how to create more empowered uh, individuals in their own health. We need to look at price transparency. We need to do all these different things. The fee-for-service model is entirely broken. We've got to bring healthcare back into primary care and really deal with health, not just sickness. And so we're having all those conversations and I'm getting pretty passionate about that. I became very passionate when I was in that role about understanding the customer, understanding the patient, uh, what drives them, what their values are, how they make decisions, all those kinds of things. And started to see more and more, we had a physician-centric culture, uh, especially where I was at, but in most places, most systems, we see that as well. Really wanted to shift to being more of a patient-centered culture and being more patient-centric in general as a system. And the more that, more and more that I saw that, the more I became disillusioned with what was happening and what was, you know, what I was a part of. Again, I don't think we need to throw out the baby with the bathwater, but I do think 
we need some innovative models and we need some innovative technologies to help support it. And so when I left uh, that company in, in late 2012, I was on a mission to figure out how we engage patients more effectively in their health. And I took a couple of years of trying to work with another company. I went to work as a chief marketing, chief strategy officer, head of their healthcare division, and really try to build this product. But ultimately, after two years, I just said, you know, if I want to do this the way I want to do it, I need to go out and do it on my own. So in 2014, I uh, split from them and, and went on this pathway to, to figure this out. And it has not been an easy pathway because healthcare change has been really slow and really brutal. And I thought in 2014, all right, we're right around the corner. Like what's happening with the national conversations, what's happening with the, the increased costs that we continue to see year over year, 10% medical rate of inflation, just all these things going on and on and on. And I just said, man, this is, it's going to happen. There's a reform is going to happen quickly. And it's been slow. But now I do think we hit this critical inflection point. I think the pandemic really pushed it over the edge. And now we see things really accelerating even more so. And so even though we've had to be patient and really you know, adapt how we fit into the market and how our product fits and uh, trying to find the right ideal customer profile of those things, I think we finally are, are there. And I think that's, you know, again, it's been a nine-year journey from that perspective. But I do think everything, the, kind of the stars are aligned right now to, to see a, a pretty major transformation in, in healthcare in our system. Now, you work in other countries besides the United States. We do. Yeah. Give me, uh, give me a little compare and contrast in what you're seeing in those environments. It's interesting. Um, so I would say they're they're farther ahead and they're thinking about value. So they have they adopted more uh, value based systems earlier than we did, um, and they did that because they had you know a significant portion of the of the structure in healthcare and in the countries were in the EU predominantly. Uh, they're nationalist systems, at least partially. They kind of a public private combination. So it's not you don't see different payers like CMS versus the Bucas, but what you see is that the public and private work together. So it's a half-owned. These are you know, typically partially publicly owned, partially privately owned. Um, and so they've been more in the space of trying to understand value and trying to deliver care in a more value-based model. And so there's, there, I think the adoption of the systems has come more quickly. Uh, the counter to that is because they are at least 50% owned by the government, uh, they're very bureaucratic. They're very slow to move. They're not very efficient. So you end up with a lot of the waste um, that we see in our system from different causes, you get waste there because of the bureaucracy, the different layers of decision making, the the speed at which they can make decisions is, I mean, it's glacier at best. It's just, it's really an interesting model. But psychologically, their framework, kind of their their mental models, their business models, all those things have have progressed pretty far down the road. And they really are trying to figure out and deliver on a much more value-based, they don't call it value-based care, but that's really what they're doing. So we see that. And then in the US, I think you, we see the, the system is so fragmented here and the payers and the inefficiency in the, in the current model, the fee-for-service models and the lack of transparency. And those are all things that cause all this waste in the system here. But at the same time, when you have innovation here, it can move a lot more quickly. So you get, the, you know, you get digital health startups like us, a lot of others who can move quickly and solve problems quickly and bring problems to market quickly. So you see more of that innovation happening more rapidly. And I think that's why we've got traction in the EU is that they're looking over there and there's just not a lot of innovation in the digital health space, uh, but there is the model is there. So now they're trying to find the innovation from other places, including the US. That's how we end up there. And, and then we get an opportunity to get a foothold and, and grow. But there's good on both sides. There's a lot of really interesting things on both sides. 
the passion and the mission is very consistent on both sides uh, of the uh, Atlantic for us. So there's that sense of they're, they're in it for the right reasons. They're trying to do the right thing for the patient. Um, they're trying to move as quickly as they can, depending on what the, you know, what are the issues that are slowing them down or a little bit different, but I think there is a similar impetus and, and passion and mission for, for these changes. I'm curious, again, talking about the international healthcare scene, it's always a hot debate, right? In the US, is it, um, can we provide healthcare for all or do you have to term it Medicare for all? You know, healthcare for all for me is everybody's going into a Freedom HealthWorks uh, client, getting, getting direct care uh, and getting all kinds of cool technology and just getting, getting traditional barriers out of the way yeah. to foster the innovation. And I love how you said in your previous life, you were at a system that was very physician-centric not necessarily patient-focused. And I think that's an interesting dynamic because there's a lot of people just in my mind that get lost there from that top-down approach, whether we're going to have burnout physicians or whether we're going to have forgotten patients. It's almost a zero-sum game that we're running right now. And I've always heard that, you know, you contrast with Europeans, got the high taxes, they got, yeah, you got your, your big bureaucratic machine, but there is an emphasis on healthcare starts at the primary care level where in the United States, we treat a lot of our primary care doctors as glorified triage facilities in order to only talk to specialists, because for some reason, that's who we think are the only people to handle it. So I'm just curious on your thoughts on why those contrasts really exist from, you know, focus on primary care versus specialty versus patient-centric versus physician-centric. Yeah. So there's a lot packed into that, but I think there's a lot, there's a lot there. (laughs) I'll start with the, uh, how do you address and think about primary care? But um, the PCPs or GPs and in the EU do, do have a much uh, broader scope of practice, and they are the primary point of care. They're not just the front door to the system, as you said. So they're not just you know a point of access for referrals into specialty care. Which again, you know, it's the way the the system has grown up and developed here and evolved here. But that is what a lot of these systems big hospital system see is that you need to have a strong primary care base because they're going to refer into your physician group. So if you've got a multi-specialty physician group, you want your internal medicine docs, your family medicine docs referring into your specialist because that's where you make your money. Um, that's what's going to ultimately fill your surgical suites and your beds that are even though that's value to you. illegal. Right. But it happens it's still, it's the way the model works and right. pragmatically. And, I, and again, I, the structure is not perfect for sure in the EU, but they're, the GPs, they're, they're really trying to deliver a much broader scope of practice care because they are not only the front door to the system, they are pretty much the door to the system. And it's much harder to get through um, unless it's acute to get through into, into specialty care. So they're going to do much more with you. If you've got sore knees and you're overweight, they're going to talk to you about losing weight first. They're not going to refer you to an orthopod to go look at your knees when they know the issue is that you've just got too much burden on your joints. So they're going to manage as much as they can in that, in that primary care environment. And I think they're, you know, that's, it's not only because they're, that's the way the system is structured. It's difficult to get out of primary care and into specialty care which is a frustration for people in those systems as well when they do actually need, when they you know when their joint has degraded to a point where it does need to be replaced or they need to have a, a surgical intervention. Um, it's harder to get out of the primary care environment and get into specialty care. And that's where the cues and things that come in that frustrate people in terms of the delays in, in care. But I think ultimately, it's really both. It's really having an empowered, strong 
primary care structure in the U.S. where most healthcare is delivered, and then a really smart and efficient, effective way for how you manage referrals within within the system. And we've got obviously we've got the we've got the data. We know what best practices are. We can put that in place, but the system's pretty you know disintegrated to do that. So that to your other part of that question, and where does this fit within? The whole structure of you know Medicare for all or some type of you know universal coverage. I think we'll always have some type of hybrid where we have a public paying system, a CMS, and probably a little bit more broad coverage, and we'll have private, um, which will be primarily driven, I think, by employers uh, in the future, or more so by employers in the future. And I think you know advancing Medicaid and Medicare models, which are already happening, so really getting really solid capitated Medicaid and Medicare models, which are delivered by private physician groups. But having that model where you've got you're advancing the the coverage and you've got a better model for for managing those patients in a in a true health environment, not just a sick care environment, I think that's coming. I think more of that is is coming, and I think that's going to be you know again and some of this direct contracting that we're seeing, you know whether it's what we're seeing in primary care um, or whether we're seeing with direct contracting, with specialty care, or these direct contracting entities, these larger structures, we see more of this getting rid of the core common construct of of insurance and really looking at what is it, what are these episodes of care? What does it take to manage a patient over the course of the year? What's the real and actual cost? How do we deliver that more effectively in primary care, primarily in primary care settings? Um, how do we effectively manage again through direct contracting when it goes to specialty care? There's going to be more of that, which I think will, as long as we've got good solid coverage for the, you know, the Medicaid and Medicare environments, then I think more of that direct contracting is going to happen through the models that we're seeing you know, again, direct primary care is a great example of that. Nearsight on-site clinics, direct contracting entities all are moving in that direction to, to create a more effective way of managing the, the patient and addressing some of the, the disconnects that happen in, in these kind of more socialized health systems like what we see in the EU. Yeah, taking different bits and pieces, what's working, see if they work together. One thing that I'm always big on and, and um, anybody who's caught a couple of uh, episodes of the Healthcare Americana will know, and anybody who's worked with us at Freedom HealthWorks will know, I'm a big proponent of aligned incentives. You've got to establish incentives that drive the behavior that you want, but all too often, the incentives really drive the incorrect behavior and, and you learn and you adjust. And the reason why I bring up incentives is usually, you know, we end these episodes with, uh, with, hey, Andrew, what's your perfect healthcare system look like? But I think we kind of eased and towed into that one. So I wanted to focus on incentives for, for the last yeah. bit of discussion here. How do you see whether C3LX is really spurning the right incentives, or is there a way that we can do better just as an industry to really incentivize people to take better care of themselves, to emphasize primary care? And on the flip side, can we incentivize health systems out there at large? You know, there's companies like us that are small, but small, but mighty, you know, trying to, trying mm-hmm. to push it that way. Need a lot yeah. more as far as numbers and growth and scale goes. But like you said, those incentives are just not there. Like why is a, is a hospital, for instance, incentivized to demand that one in three orthopedic consultations go in for surgery or whether they need it or not? That's kind of an, an easy example there. But yeah. I guess, yeah, the, the, the final question here, you know, for you how can we more fully align incentives up and down the healthcare scope between patients and physicians? It's a great, great question. It's one of the, the crux of one of our kind of most significant national issues, obviously. What we do know for sure is, you know, offering them a 3% bonus at the end of the year for hitting outcome numbers um, doesn't work. You know, that's where these early incentives were meaningless. Um, that that's for sure. And again, I think 
you know, we, we kind of fall into the space where we get a lot of pressure to, you know, to deliver RPM codes back to, you know, fever service clinics so they can bill more for RPM services. And that incentive I think is, is wrong as well. So it shouldn't be about doing more uh, in reimbursement. It shouldn't be about creating these kind of marginal incentives on the outside. Again, I think it's very complex, but I think you have to look at it from a population perspective um, and you've got to be able to attribute a patient to a care environment. So a uh, primary care, specialty care, and uh, both inpatient and outpatient services, you've got to be able to attribute a patient into that type of a model. And you've got to be able to measure the cost at the risk. So you've got to understand the risk of that population. You got to understand the cost of that population. And you got to bring those things together. And you've got to, the incentive has got to be that you have to do, do better. That's on the delivery system side. On the, you know, so you have to, again, I think today those are disconnected for the most part, risk and reimbursement unless you're in a truly capitated model. And even in a truly capitated model, it's typically just managing one portion of that primary care, for example. Um, so I think that risk and risk and cost and that at a population level needs to really be brought much more closely together and it needs to be tied to uh, a realistic um, effect of what it does to, if you manage that population's health more effectively, what is the cost reduction and how do you, how do you reward that um, over time? Um, so I think that's one piece, but the, the secondary piece you asked about, which I think is a real conundrum, is what do you do to incent patients uh, more effectively in managing their in their health? And I think, you know, you see things like, um, you know, I don't know if you're from Way and Win or some of these things that are typically sponsored by the insurance company. So, you know, United Healthcare offers you wellness plan type of stuff. Yeah. Yep. And they offer you a hundred bucks if you're going to, if you lose 10 pounds on way and win and you, you know, or this, your employer does or those types of things. And it's, it's very, uh, it's very, again, episodic. It's, you know, typically you see a ton of recidivism. Um, so they're, they're not good incentives to actually manage health overall. Um, but I, I think part of it's our national conversation. Again, you're, you know, I'll, I'll use the pandemic as an example for that right now, but our conversation right now is around, you know, who's been vaccinated and who's not. Um, you know, are you at risk for transmission? Are you at risk for, for serious COVID effects? Um, we know that the reality of that is, is that you've got, you know, a population in the U.S. that's been, uh, for the most part, really adversely impacted by COVID, and they've got quite a few comorbidities. It's an issue of overall health. And that we're not having the right conversation at the national level that could lead to, I think, some of those changes that we need to see that come with incentives. If we were talking right now about the reality is our kids aren't aren't at big risk for for COVID. Most, you know, again, ninety nine point nine 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 percent of kids who get COVID recover and are just fine. That doesn't talk about though this issue. We've got a growing issue of childhood obesity. So let's not talk about whether or not they should get vaccinated. Or not. Let's talk about overall health and let's deal with it. And we've had a few runs at it at the kind of a typically coming out of the White House or the first ladies have said, hey, let's get kids playing, let's get them outside. There are things like that. But again, at a national level, there's not an ongoing and consistent conversation from our public health officials as well about these very real issues. So we're talking about every once in a while, you know, they're coming back to, you know, let's talk about diabetes prevention, what the CDC is doing with diabetes prevention. But again, on a consistent national basis, we're not having the right conversation about healthy eating and food. And what are we doing to really, if we're going to incent people to be healthy, how do we give them better access to fresh, healthy foods, foods that are organic, that are green and leafy, 
those types of things. What are we doing to, to discount and, and disincentivize the eating of, you know, a Big Mac and a large fries? We're not doing things like that. It's not happening on a national level. And I think if we really want to get after it, we got to think about those types of things. We want to incent people. You know, again, we talk about sin taxes. So we, we tax the heck out of tobacco. People still smoke, but it's, it's a burden and more people are more likely to, to not smoke with that additional cost. What are we doing to do the same thing when we're thinking about national health in relationship to nutrition diet, which is, you know, again, I think the, the big killer in our, in our system. So let's think about that and let's figure out how we incent and, and motivate people to, and give access to for people with food insecurity. How do they have access to healthy food in the inner city? Um, if they're a low-income population, they're on Medicaid, um, or if they're not on Medicaid and private insurance, but a low-income area, and it's hard to get access to good, healthy food, how are we going to do that? That kind of food distribution incentive strategy, those are things that need to be talked about if we're going to empower patients and not just direct care based on the fee-for-service versus you know, value-based capitated models. I would welcome that conversation from a, uh, from a voting standpoint, from a federal standpoint, from a state initiative standpoint. What you said just makes a lot of sense and I'm right there with you. Andrew Richberg, CEO of C3LX. Thank you so much for joining us here on Healthcare Americana. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate it. It's fun. Once again, I'm your host, Christopher Habig. Thanks for listening. Check out healthcareamericana.com to hear all our episodes, visit the shop, and learn more about the podcast. Healthcare Americana is produced by Taylor Scott and iPodcast Pro and managed by Melissa Turpin. Whether you're a patient, employer, or physician, the Free Market Medical Association can facilitate and assist you in your free market healthcare journey. The foundation of our association is built upon three pillars, price, value, and equality, with complete transparency in everything we do. Our goal is simple, match willing buyers with willing sellers of valuable healthcare services. Join us and help accelerate the growth of the free market healthcare revolution. For more information on the Free Market Medical Association, visit fmma.org. Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry. And we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.